0: IEEE SA Voice shares insights and perspectives from the IEEE SA community, subject matter experts, and industry leaders that are working to raise the world standards, drive market solutions, and much more, keeping you at the forefront of technological innovation
1: for the benefit of humanity. Welcome to the IEEE SA Rethink Health podcast series. I'm your host, Maria Pallombini, Director of the IEEE SA Healthcare and Life Sciences Global Practice. This podcast takes industry stakeholders, technologists, researchers, clinicians, regulators, and more from around the globe to task. We ask them, how can we rethink the approach to healthcare with the responsible use of new technologies and applications that can afford more security, protection, sustainable, equitable access to quality care for all individuals? Yes, this is an ambitious goal, but a very important one. We have previous seasons of our podcast series. You can find them on ieesa.io backslash health podcast, or you can use your favorite podcast player, Apple Podbean, Spotify, and more to find us. So here we are with season three, AI for Good Medicine, which brings a suite of multidisciplinary experts from around the globe to provide insights as to how do we envision artificial intelligence, machine learning, or any other deep learning technology delivering good medicine for all? We all want good medicine, but at what price? Essentially in terms of trust and validation in its use. As healthcare industry stakeholders, we're not looking for the next frontier of medicine if it's not pragmatic, responsible, and can be equitably valuable to all. In this season, we go directly to the technologists, the clinicians, and the researchers, the ethicists, and ask them about these deep learning technologies can they be real, trusted impact on improving outcomes for patients anywhere from drug development to healthcare delivery? So here it is. Will AI, ML, and deep learning cut through the health data swamp for better health outcomes? So just a small disclaimer before we begin, IEEE does not endorse or financially support any of the products or services discussed in our podcast at any time. We're here to interview the experts based on their innovations and the experience in the field. It is my pleasure to welcome Dave DiCaprio, co-founder and CTO of Closed Loop AI to our conversation. Welcome, Dave. Thanks. Great, so we're gonna get into a conversation about a better understanding of explainable AI and how to better close the healthcare gap. Closed Loop AI lives by a mission to improve health and transform care with data science and AI. They are a winner of many different innovations awards, and most notably, in 2021, they won the $1.6 million grant from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Artificial Intelligence Health Outcomes Challenge, one of the largest healthcare-focused AI challenges in history. They beat out some hefty competition, and we're going to get to it into the core of the interview. I often hear that successful entrepreneurs are those who are passionate about the topic or the mission of their work. I read the story about your co-founder, Andrew I. about his daughter. She was on the verge of a liver transplant after an autoimmune hepatitis diagnosis of her liver. Ultimately and thankfully, a prescription for prednisone saved her from that fate. But the moral of the story, Andrew later learned that in half of all pediatric liver failure cases, they never had a diagnosis. And in 15% of those cases, they never ran the autoimmune hepatitis test. No one had ever used past data to improve that clinical decision, which is where closed loop AI is hoping to change that course. This is why I'm so excited to have this podcast with you, Dave. So Dave, tell us a little bit about you. I know you're a co-founder of closed loop and knowing the story behind Andrew's daughter, what drives your passion most in this work? How did you get here?
0: Yeah, I think part of the reason that story is so powerful is because it resonates with everybody. Everybody has some connection to the healthcare system and an example of where it hasn't worked great for them. I grew up watching my older brother struggle with rheumatoid arthritis before there were any effective treatments. And as a kid, I always knew there wasn't much difference between him and I, but I was able to run and jump and do all kinds of things that he wasn't able to. That just never really felt fair to me. And I think that underlying unfairness, just because he happened to get a disease that I didn't, I think has driven a lot of my passion for healthcare. I've been in some form of AI and healthcare and life sciences for about 20 years now. I got started with the opportunity to work on the Human Genome Project, the original sequencing of the human genome at MIT. And then I was in drug discovery for a long time. One day I was working in drug discovery and I thought to myself, I don't think the problem with healthcare that's most important is that we don't have enough pills. There's got to be something else. So I started looking around at what were the problems with healthcare, and what were the ones that I, as a computer scientist, would have some ability to, to help fix? And that's how we ended up in this space of trying to figure out how to use all the available data we have to just make all the right decisions using all the information today. There's so much technology and treatment, and there's so many therapies, but we're not always giving the right treatment to the right person at the right time, given the data we have. And so that's been my mission.
1: Absolutely. I think everybody has a healthcare story. I also have a similar situation, family members misdiagnosed with cancer, then it was caught too late, and then we all know how it works in oncology when things go too late. But he has that similar story, and it's really inspiring that you guys take those challenges and turn them into, hopefully, a cure in some form or another. What's Closed Loops' philosophy on tackling healthcare challenges and changes? What is the vision of bringing this innovative, off-the-shelf approach to AI tools, this commitment to transparency that you guys are all about?
0: As far as the the philosophy on tackling healthcare challenges, I think one of the most important driving factors for us is really humility. Healthcare has enormous problems, it's super hard, and there are a ton of smart people working on it. And you can't go in with an attitude of we're going to have this magic algorithm that fixes healthcare and then everything's going to be great and we're going to revolutionize the industry. No matter what you do, most of the smart people are working somewhere else. And so we've really tried to focus on, hey, what are practical things we can do to actually make improvements today with the technology that exists today? And importantly, we try to think about not just how we can build an algorithm that does something, but how do we build a set of tools that make everybody a little bit better at doing this? There's no way closed loop is going to be able to solve all the problems, but maybe we can make some tools that'll help a much larger group of people be able to really make a bigger dent in the problems we face. If you start with that perspective, then you start to think about how do we make what we do transparent? People can't use our tools if they don't understand them. How do we make them as simple and robust as possible? And sometimes that means not using the most advanced technology we can find, but trying to use the thing that's going to work the most, the most often. And so that's how we try to approach these problems.
1: I'm glad you mentioned that it's a tool, and it's not going to solve everybody's problem, but the idea is that everybody's working towards contributing to solving the problem. I briefly mentioned the awesome award that closed Loop 1, but let me give you a little background. The challenge was focused on explainable artificial intelligence solutions to help frontline clinicians understand and trust AI-driven data feedback. We all know this is a massive concern in the industry, and it was to demonstrate how AI solutions could predict unplanned hospital emissions and adverse events which is a $200 billion problem that impacts nearly 32% of Medicare beneficiaries. This is information coming to us from CMS. For those of you outside the United States, the CMS is the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services. It's a government-run payer for certain citizens of the United States, either driven by age or disability or some other factor. So, Dave, you guys beat out some competition, some large multinational organizations Can you tell us what made Closed Loop's patient health forecast stand out among the competition? Where did it excel most to meet or exceed um, that tough judge's panel expectations?
0: This is always a fun one to answer. There's a lot that goes into winning a challenge like this. I think the most important thing is you have to believe you can. When we submitted the application, there were 300-plus teams IBM, Watson, the Mayo Clinic, the Cleveland Clinic participating. It's a lot of hard work. And the first thing is you got to believe that you can actually win. So you're willing to put in all the effort it takes to to win. Second, one of the things that I told the team throughout the contest was the overall quality of our submission, it's going to be dictated by the dumbest mistake we make. I think one of the things that really distinguished our solution was not having any weak spots. There were three parts of the contest, accuracy, explainability, and fairness. And we pushed really hard in all three of those areas and tried to make it so that every element of the solution reinforced every other element. And we didn't have any spot where we felt like the solution was weak or we weren't doing something that somebody else would have thought to do or could have seen. On the patient health forecast in particular, this was a, a user interface to explain the predictions and help drive further clinical interventions. As a software company, we approached it as a software user interface. It was a particularly important one, one that shows predictions of people's future health, but the same qualities of user testing, user research, doing lots of incremental iterations. We did like 17 different iterations of that patient health forecast every time getting more and more feedback on it. What did people like? What did they understand? What did they not understand? And it changed a ton from the beginning of what we thought would be valuable to what people actually found valuable. And so many things approaching it with just a discipline and a process and, and being willing to put in the work on all those iterations, I think ultimately made something that stood out against the competition.
1: We're going to get now into the next part about exactly how this sort of project went on, but I think it's just amazing the approach. So Closed Loop is based in Austin, Texas. Unfortunately, like in major metro areas, we see there's always a disproportionate rate of disease. Such as cancer, diabetes, and even COVID 19 amongst people of color. These are often marginalized communities that don't have access to healthcare. So I know that Dr. Jim Walton, presidency of Genesis Physicians Group in Dallas, who reached out to you guys to help them sift through this social and clinical data of 30,000 Medicaid patients to identify who would be the most risk of getting ill and would have the most significant outcomes as it relates to COVID 19. You get this request, right? You get this opportunity. What are some of the considerations when you first looked at this project and said, okay, we have all this data. How are we going to validate the findings? I'm sure you guys were like, wow, this is a great opportunity, but there's a lot here to go through.
0: This was a fascinating project. I think one of the really interesting things about it is a consideration that happens in nearly every project we have, which is trying to make sure that you're building an AI-based predictive model, but that it actually maps to some use in the real world and some actionable decision or intervention that can occur. I'll explain why that was particularly important in this case. First, there's a lot when you approach a project like this that you have to understand about just good hygiene, essentially, in building a predictive model making sure you're doing appropriate historical back tests, you've got representative populations, you're checking that the model is performing well across all different groups, it's not biased towards one or another. Those are a bunch of checks that you need to just understand and do, and we consider those kind of table stakes for operating in this space. The good thing is most of that stuff is well-documented, and if you just follow data science best practices, you can kind of get there. Where this project got interesting was that what was going to happen with these predictions, people who worked for Dr. Walden were social workers. This was not doctors that these predictions were going to. These were social workers who were going to be able to reach out and help people overcome some of the barriers they might have to treatment. Because these predictions were going to social workers, the kinds of interventions they could do were more around the social determinants of health than the clinical aspects of it. So these weren't people who were going to be prescribing new drugs or ordering tests or giving treatments, but they were somebody who could arrange childcare or transportation or get somebody into a community-based program or enroll them with a community food bank. They were having problems getting meals. So when we looked at what was available to those people, it turned out that what they really needed to know was who was the most likely to have these problematic outcomes where that outcome could be improved by addressing some social factor or something else that a social worker could get to. And so when we built that model, we actually didn't include every single piece of clinical information we had available, but we focused a lot on including all of the social determinants information so that when we gave those predictions back, each prediction came with some identification of what were the social determinants that were likely modifiable for this person that could actually improve it. There's a big difference between just predicting something and predicting something and saying, hey, here is something that you can actually go do with it. That's one of the fascinating things of this project is it wasn't about putting this thing in front of a doctor. It was about putting it in front of a social worker and seeing what they could do. And that actually affected the model that we built.
1: Wow, that's a fascinating approach. Usually, we always think about the physical, right, the clinical side of health, but there are so many social determinants that are barriers, right, to getting, like you said, can't afford or they have childcare or whatever issues. Another way of looking at the problem, and obviously the data with it was probably just an awesome finding. Hey there. Did you know that the average patient may have two or more connected medical or fitness devices in, on, around their body operating at one time. Plus, they may have 10 or more smart devices on average operating in their home. How seamless, secure, and private could that patient's personal area network be? IEEE SA's WAMI program, Wearables and Medical IOT Interoperability and Intelligence, has a global community of experts collaborating and incubating solutions for these exact type of challenges. If you want to join in or learn more, visit IEEESA.io backslash WAMI, W-A-M-I-I-I. Also, while on the website, check out the WAMPI Virtual Talk Series, free access to more than 30 sessions on demand, plus our regular live broadcasts. Just visit ieesa.io backslash whammy for all the details. For our audience out there, the goal of the competition was not just about accuracy. When we think about AI, we're always thinking about accuracy, of course, but it was about explainability and transparency. We all know with physicians, with AI, they're like, I'm not so sure about this thing and how is this all going to (laughs) work? What makes closed-loop software explainable to physicians who are not technologists, but they need to use it for better clinical decision-making? What exactly does it even mean to be explainable AI?
0: I can tell you what it means for us. I don't want to get in a debate with anybody about Mm -hmm. what explainable AI means for everyone and what the official definition is, but I can tell you what it means for us. For us, that's providing with every prediction that we make the reasons why. The system doesn't just put out a number that says, I think you have a 92% risk of going to the hospital in the next six months. It says, I think you have a 92% risk of going to the hospital and the baseline risk for somebody at your age with your overall conditions would be 65%. And that difference is because of the following specific things I've seen about you. And by I've seen, anthropomorphizing the, the algorithm a little bit, but Each prediction comes with, hey, I've noticed you were at the emergency room visits recently. You were in the hospital. You've had an increase in utilization. Your drugs have changed recently. You had a change in prescriptions, and that's often associated with complications when somebody gets on a new drug. Or maybe you've stopped taking one of your medications, and we've seen that in your refill record. There are all these individual items that can come up that affect it. And when you show the prediction along with those reasons why, that provides explainability. Now, what you don't have to do is try to explain all the details of how the entire algorithm works and all the math behind it. Clinicians don't generally care about that. What they do care about is seeing here's what the prediction is, here's what the baseline for somebody like that would look like, and here's the reasons why this person is a little bit different or here's what's special about them. If you can demonstrate that and show that those reasons make clinical sense to a clinician, it's the way they gain trust in other clinicians. They talk to them about the decisions they make and why they made them, and then those decisions make sense. So then they agree. You also need to have enough statistical rigor and enough scale that you can prove that the individual cases people are looking at are representative of everything. But really, it's about explaining an individual prediction. The math part of this is pretty much available. We use a technique called SHAP scores. There's a couple other techniques available. The underlying math is pretty well laid out, but how you present that to a clinician is really important. How you figure out the right significance cutoff for what is important to show and what isn't. How do you explain those things in normal English terms so that people can understand them? That's a lot of what we build around the underlying predictions to make these things actually comprehensible so that people can understand the individual predictions. The interesting thing about explainability is once you start using it, you realize how incredibly valuable it is for not just the explainability piece, but everything about what you're doing. When the models come up with a top factor and a top reason why that doesn't make any sense, it's just a great trigger that something has gone wrong in the data. Something is up with the validation of this model. If the model suddenly says that, oh, nobody has been taking their prescriptions for the past two months, well, maybe we're not getting the right prescription data anymore. And we can see that kind of stuff, and it pops right out in the models. That's how we approach explainability. I think there's other approaches that different people have made, and I think we're all just trying to figure out what's the right way to do it.
1: It makes sense. We always hear people say, if you don't understand something, you tend not to trust it. I think that the explainability from that point of view, if a doctor can understand the points of reference, how it got there, then it all comes together. So I think that's definitely an interesting and valuable approach, especially for overcoming that barrier of trust when it comes to physicians from that point of view. Interestingly, trust it comes up again, of course, with AI. We see that AI for healthcare tends to trend towards this proprietary algorithm to solve whatever issue in the healthcare domain they're designed for. But this sort of proprietary kind of seems to further fuel the distrust amongst physicians who are really concerned that these tools may not account for all the patients equally in their patient pool. So this question of bias and how are these things arriving at these decisions. My question to you is, how does CLOSEL mitigate those concerns for this potential bias by giving tools to health systems to build their own algorithms, obviously with the understanding that they might have the tech team to support that kind of effort?
0: This is definitely something we see We talked to several of the bigger companies and they always wanna have this model store where you can come in and just pull algorithms off the shelf and then deploy them in, in your environment. I couldn't disagree more with that approach. Maybe at some point in the future, it might be feasible, but I think if you look at the state of the technology today and the state of the data today in modern healthcare organizations, we are not at the point where you can make an algorithm or a model in one place and then apply it everywhere. If you have a proprietary algorithm that works off a very fixed data set, like an MRI machine that has a built-in algorithm to predict some aspect of maybe ejection fraction for a heart MRI, that can work very well because the data is constrained. But once you start looking at people's wider medical records and longitudinal data and integrating many different data sources across healthcare organizations, what you end up with is that so much of the variability of the system is in each company's individual data layout. And so the idea that you could somehow take one algorithm and apply it in all those things and be able to validate that at all, doesn't make any sense. You have to validate the actual system that's running, which includes all of that data. And so our approach is very much to, how do we very quickly go into an organization, take the data they have available, build and vet a model on their data so we can actually get their historical data and do historical back tests and validation on their data with their population, and then explain how those models work so that the people who are involved get a sense that this is not just gonna work in the abstract. They know that this is gonna work on my population. It is then possible to get that kind of trust. I don't ever wanna say it's easy to get trust of clinicians and it shouldn't be, it should be a high bar to get, but it should be possible if you can show them that it's gonna work in their entire system.
1: Absolutely. Physicians have to earn patient's trust. So I think when we look at the chain, that's pretty much the way it will go for sure. I like to ask this question of all my guests, think fast type question. so here it is. When I mention AI for good medicine, what's the first thing that comes to mind and why?
0: I guess I'd say health disparities. The difference in healthcare outcomes, particularly in the U.S. based on a variety of factors, race, socioeconomic status, gender, there are massive disparities in the outcomes that people have that are not dictated by biology. They're dictated by societal differences. And these are a huge problem. If you look at the problem of health disparities, socioeconomic status, nearly every model we build, if you include socioeconomic status as a factor, it comes up as significant. So it is always important for nearly every outcome that we look at. This is a really big problem. It's something where it requires an active fix. If you just use AI and machine learning to build systems and don't think about actively reducing health disparities, what you're going to do is embed those disparities in the systems that you build. So it's not a problem you can even ignore or deal with later because you will make it worse if you build systems today. There is a huge example of this with a model that was trying to select people for chronic care management programs based on their prior healthcare cost. There were racial differences in how much it costs to treat the same illness among different races. And so that model ended up being racially biased because it it was treating people who historically were more expensive were being treated by the model as being historically sicker. And so it was directing more resources towards them. And so it was an example of a model embedding a past inequity into the future. For me, it's a question of AI for good. You have to be on one side or the other of that argument. If you're not building for bias and fairness into the models you're building today, that means you're building models that reinforce inequities. The final reason that this comes up to me is that overall, it's sort of a win-win-win for society when you address these. Medicare in the U.S. takes care of everybody over 65. And so the healthier we can keep people and the healthier we can keep the population, the better off society is as we go forward. Because in the end, when people hit 65, Medicare ends up bearing the brunt of those costs. And Medicare means the federal government. The federal government means everybody in the United States who's paying taxes. So Ultimately, trying to reduce these disparities is very important for not just the health of the people who are being affected, but really also the overall competitiveness and healthiness of the country as a whole.
1: Absolutely. We want to focus on aging healthy. As we all know, the aging population is the fastest growing segment, and it's going to outpace the younger generation. And it's not just about them living longer, it's them living longer healthy. So I totally agree. It's really important. I wish I would have had you on the first episode of this season. We had a debate on whether AI could help address the issues of healthcare inequity, or some have argued that AI actually makes that gap even wider. The guest that I had agreed with what you were saying, that AI has this opportunity to better address it, but we have seen this debate and it keeps going on. Definitely appreciate your insight on that one for sure.
0: Absolutely. It does have the potential to make things better or worse. It's all in how we use it
1: into our segue about ethics. Ethics means many different things to many different people. Here we're talking about in the form of validated and responsible use in the use of AI and or machine learning for healthcare. Given your work in various healthcare use cases, what would you like the global healthcare community to know about these types of applications that perhaps they may not be aware or misled when it comes to truly and potentially improving the patient's health outcomes? I think one
0: of the first things for people to realize is that fairness is not a math problem. When you build a model, there's certain checks you can do to make sure that the model isn't inherently biased towards one protected group or another. And those are important and straightforward things that you should do. But don't take that to the extent of believing that there's a simple report you can run on your model and it comes back with a big green fair check mark or a red not fair X on it. Anybody who's trying to simplify these issues that much and tell you there's just something you can run to tell you if your model is fair or not, those people are trying to sell you something. It's it's a complicated issue. Fairness is, again, you can't just look at the algorithm. You have to look at the way that model is being used. And as an example, you can look at something like racial differences in use of the emergency department. You can go see that different racial groups use the emergency department more or less. It's unfair to use that information and decide how much you're gonna charge people for health insurance. That's actually illegal. And we say, you can't use somebody's race to do that. However, if you're trying to decide which people you should outreach to, to help them, you have an education program about proper use of the healthcare system and when you should go to a primary care provider and when you should go to an emergency department, You really want to target that towards the right group of people. And so then it may make sense to use that same information for a different purpose. And so fairness, that one model that uses this piece of information may be fair when used to determine who you should be educating about proper use of the health system and not fair when you're using to decide health insurance costs. And so you can't look at fairness independent of the application of the model. I think that's probably the first thing that I'd I'd like people to know. And that applies to everything, not just healthcare. Mm-hmm. The second point I have is really specific to healthcare, and it's that common fairness metrics often point you in the wrong direction in healthcare. There's a common fairness metrics of equality of outcomes, and some contexts that's a very common standard for fairness that's used in a lot of places, and it's very appropriate. If we look at giving loans based on gender, we'd ideally say that we would like gender to have no outcome on the outcome of a loan, and We'd ultimately expect in a fair world that the same number of men and women would get approved for loans. Now, there can be a lot of disagreements on if that's not true, is it really unfair or not? But I think we can all agree that ideally, in a perfect world, that would be the right outcome. If you're building a model to decide who should get breast cancer screening, the answer is not that men and women should get it equally. Breast cancer does actually occur in men. It's not a zero occurrence thing, but it's obviously far more prevalent in women. And so if we're building a model, a fair use of a model that is trying to figure out proactive outreach around breast cancer, it should be biased towards women. The right answer is that the model should choose many more women than it does men. And so you can't use these simple metrics that work in maybe a loan decision in a healthcare context and expect them to get the right answer. And in fact, often they will pull you in the wrong direction. All of that is to say you have to think specifically about what you're doing. There are some good frameworks available to think about. These issues always consider that healthcare outcomes can be different than other kinds of outcomes. And you need to take that into account when evaluating an AI or machine learning
1: Absolutely. One size cannot fit all. And I think that applies to every aspect and every element in what we do in the healthcare system, for sure. We talked about the great opportunities, the exciting learnings, the innovations, what we're doing. If you had to think of the most challenging aspect or gap, it could be lack of policy, lack of open data, cybersecurity issue, privacy, not addressed right now in these AI applications that continues to maybe cause concern, uncertainty lack of trust in the tools, what would it be? Why? And in your opinion, what may be the best way to resolve it?
0: When we talk to customers in various organizations about AI applications, I think one of the biggest barriers that people have is trying to think about the ultimate future they want to get to and the ultimate vision of what they have and not thinking about the practical steps you can take today. In a sense, I think all of the problems you brought up, security, privacy, lack of open data, all of these things are major obstacles and they all have big issues that prevent us from the sort of healthcare data nirvana that we could imagine. But none of those things means we can't make progress. Every one of those, there are practical solutions to get things moving today. I think one of the big things that we see that we try to overcome is to get people to think about what you can do today with what you have. And how to get moving and get practical advantages now, because the only way we get to that bright future is demonstrating the power of the technology today. When people start to see that even with all of these barriers confronting us, we can still actually improve decisions we are making today. We have people in Dallas, we have people in Chicago, New York, rural areas throughout the country where we're making better decisions today using the imperfect data that we already have. And if we can get people to accept that we can start using all of this technology and we can gain trust in it even before everything's perfect, then I think we can start to move forward. And that provides the momentum you need to tackle those bigger challenges.
1: Absolutely. Although I'm going to tell you that I like that term healthcare nirvana. I might borrow that for my (laughs) next webinar series, by the way. (laughs) Dave, you shared with us so many great insights. I will tell you that my favorite quote is, fairness is not a math problem. I might (laughs) put that on my wall at work. But any final thoughts that you would like to share with our audience? We have many technologists here at the IEEE and beyond our walls who may be already participating in this area of tech in the healthcare domain or thinking about going into it. Any calls to action or things to think about uh, that you would like to impart with them?
0: I think I'd say for the technologists considering or interested in healthcare but who, you know, maybe hasn't been in the space, don't be afraid of it. It is complex and it is challenging, but it is also very rewarding. It is all things you can learn, it is all problems that can be tackled. So there's a barrier, but don't be afraid of getting over that. And then once you're there, one thing I've already mentioned is humility understanding that problems are very large and you can have a huge impact without revolutionizing the system. There are many problems that are broken. Find something that's broken and try to fix it. And importantly, along with that humility, is always remembering, especially for the people who are down in the data, that every row in that data set is a human life. It might be your mom. I always tell people, you can do an analysis and get a result and you might be happy with it. But then what if I told you that row 10 in that analysis was your mom or row number six was your little brother? Would you still be happy with it? If you're in healthcare, I think you have the responsibility to ask that question yourself every time. And every time we present a result or we build a model, we try to think, would I be happy if I knew the output of this model is going to be run on my mom? And if you're not, you probably shouldn't be doing this. The people in that data set are somebody's mom. You need to think about that. So there's an additional responsibility, I think, that comes with healthcare that you don't have necessarily when you're analyzing... Add impressions on a click stream. But there's also, along with that responsibility comes the impact you can have and the knowledge you're actually really affecting potentially somebody's health and some of the most important decisions they make in their life.
1: Very well said. I think that you just really humanized what you guys are doing with tech. It could be my mom, my best friend, my sister, my brother. And sometimes that gets lost, but I think you just brought it back down to earth. I wanna really thank you for joining me today and having this awesome, great conversation It's really been a delight. So thank you so much for joining me.
0: Thanks, Maria. It's been wonderful for me.
1: For all of you out there, if you want to learn more about Closed Loop, visit closed closedloop, C L O S E D L O O P dot A I. And you can see the awesome work that they're doing in different areas of applications and their next steps moving forward and what they're embarking on. Many of the concepts we had in this conversation with Dave are addressed in various activities throughout our healthcare life science practice here. Our mission of the practice is a lot what Dave referenced today. It's really looking at how we can support innovation, enable privacy, security, and equitable, sustainable access to quality care for all individuals. We have projects and initiatives such as WAMI, Wearables and Medical IoT Interoperability Intelligence, transforming the telehealth paradigm, decentralized clinical trials, ethical assurance of data-driven technologies for mental health care, and robotics for the aging, healthy, and assisted living. These are all activities, people from all over the globe, experts working together, developing standards, identifying situations and challenges. So if you're interested and you want to learn more about these activities, they're all open and free to participate. And you can visit ieesa.io backslash HLS for the Healthcare Life Science Practice. If you enjoyed this podcast and you find the things that you heard today really interesting and you want to share them with your peers and colleagues, please do so. This is the way we get the information out to the domain letting them know about the great ideas and all the opportunities and challenges with using these technologies in healthcare, be sure to use hashtag IEEE HLS or tag us on Twitter at IEESA or on LinkedIn, IEEE Standards Association, when sharing the podcast. I want to do a special thanks to you, the audience, for listening in today and continue to stay well. Until next time. On behalf of IEEE
0: Standards Association and IEEE SA Voice, thank you for joining us today. For more information, please visit standards.iEEE.org. We hope you'll join us again soon.